and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week, the podcast where we take the damn interesting links on damninteresting.com and make them even a little bit more damn interesting by talking about them. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. The Smithsonian Magazine has an article about a David Bowie painting that was purchased at a landfill for $4 that is expected to fetch thousands at auction. And since the article is a little old, I looked up the price that it sold for. It sold for $108 thousand dollars whoa that's quite a few thousands <laughs> so was it a picture of him or a picture painted by him by bowie uh there's a nice. label on the back and it quite clearly identifies the work but they wanted to confirm the portrait's provenance so cowley abbott auction house contacted andy peters who is an authenticator of bowie's handwriting and artwork what a job title. Yeah. When Peters saw the canvas, he knew what it was straight away. So they were able to identify the fact that the work was quite similar to many of the portraits from the series Deadheads, which was a series of artwork that David Bowie did hmm. in apparently 1997. The picture itself is rather modest. It's 9.75 <laughs> by 8 inches. I mean, you know, in size anyway. I mean, it was right. It sounds Bowie like a nice so. way of saying Bowie wasn't a good painter. It's just because well, he did it. <laughs> okay. Full disclosure, I am not the most well-versed or sophisticated visual art connoisseur. And so, you know, there's a picture of it at the article. You can take mm -hmm. a look at it. It kind of is a watercolory looking blank face with kind of a shag haircut in shades of white, red, and blue. It's it's fine, but again, I am not an art <laughs> critic, but, you know, obviously uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. The number of it is 46, and the painting is one of 47 in the D-Head series. And the people who sat for the photos ranged from band members, friends and acquaintances, and there were also some self-portraits. It's fascinating to me that someone had this and knew that David Bowie painted it. And then somehow that information got lost and it ended up in the hands of someone who was like, oh, this is a garbage painting. It's going right. Yeah. Like, how how do you lose that data? I guess when people die, if somebody had it and it was part of an estate and then the child just had no idea. I mean, you're also assuming that whoever the recipient was, you know, had very stable relationships. It could have been like, sure. you know, something in a very terrible breakup. Well, I'm taking this and now it reminds me of my ex. <laughs> so I'm throwing it away. That's, That's where true. my brain went. Still, you just threw away $100,000. Yeah, <laughs> someone's feeling like a dumb dumb for sure right now. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from atlasobscura.com. It's titled, Spiders Covered Australian Shores with a Massive Gossamer Blanket. That sounds much nicer than what I think it probably is. Yeah, that's downright romantic. Yeah, well, <laughs> if you look at the article, which I really recommend because it looks incredible, it really does look like a massive, sheer, transparent blanket that's just like sitting on top of the grass on the ground. And it looks very pretty. But if you got really close to it, you'd see, oh, it's all spider webs. Covered uh, in spiders, right? Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. And there's another photo with just tons of spiders crawling wow. all over the place. Well, 
Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so in mid-June, storms pelted Gippsland, a region in Victoria that cups part of mainland Australia's southeastern edge. The weather snuffed out power at tens of thousands of homes, but after the rain, a bewitching sight appeared along the area's saggy shores. It looked as if somebody had draped the landscape with gauzy sheets. They were white, thin, and fragile-looking, and appeared to have been placed gingerly like fluffed veils. <laughs> Tussled by the wind, the sheets undulated like billowing fabric. Somebody's really getting the most out of their creative writing degree here. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> so... On June 14th, four days after the storms began, Wellingtonshire Council member Carolyn Crossley ventured out to survey a flooded wetland between the communities of Sale and Longford. There, Crossley found the webs affixed to nearly everything, trees, signs, fence posts, cars, herself. <laughs> Such expanses of silk have been spotted before, including in Texas and Pakistan. Nope. So <laughs> I'm just going to be in denial about the Texas one. Like, you said it, but I'm not going to believe it. How's that? Yeah. That's esteemed company, though. Australia, Pakistan, and Texas. That's all right. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you mean for horrific and... levels of bug insects? Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And they typically follow a flood. So floodwaters hmm. lead to a bumper crop of insects and also flush ground-dwelling spiders out of their homes or hunting hmm. grounds in leaf litter or low vegetation. So while some spider species can spend hours or even days submerged, many can't and when they need to get moving and avoid drowning, some use a tactic called ballooning, which entails releasing a light thread of silk into the wind and letting it carry them away. When floods sloshed into spider habitats in Finland in 2012, at least 13 spider species were found to have ballooned their way up into the vegetation. The Gippsland balloonists, according to University of Sydney ecologist Dieter Hochuli, may be members of a family known as sheet web spiders, which build horizontal webs and are found across Australia and New Zealand. But what I'm hearing here is spiders can fly. Yes. <laughs> like, that's that's the new nightmare that we have to think about now is, by yes. the way, some spiders can just take to the air. Did that happen in Charlotte's Web? <laughs> <laughs> Did it? <laughs> I think so, at the very end. Uh, spiders produce several different types of silk, and from these photos, it's impossible to tell dragline silk, a web-building variety that also allows spiders to dangle, apart from a type used to capture prey. But Cushing suspects that after fleeing the water, the spiders also made webs to enjoy an insect buffet. Mm -hmm. They probably weren't the only ones feasting, though. While photographing the spider hordes, Crossley spotted some birds canvassing the area. Although reports emerge about these mass web incidents associated with flooding, there's not often a follow-up report focused on what happens post-flooding. Well, except we now have a giant horde of birds, and <laughs> there's going to be whatever eats the birds is coming next. Now we're going to have an abundance of cats. It's just going to spiral out of control, you guys. <laughs> then just a bunch of dogs, That's and then right. just a bunch of alligators? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> if this is the premise for a Disney movie, I'm on board. I got to be honest. Yeah, they can make it cute. Yeah. 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 I mean, maybe look at the article first. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. We're going to get a little into the technical weeds with this one, but I believe in us. I think we can do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's called The New Wave of Gravitational Waves. And from the outset, let me say it's a little disingenuous for them to be talking about this new wave of scientific experiments because actually gravitational waves themselves are brand spanking new. Mm. We only just discovered these things in 2015. 
And the oh. team that did it won the Nobel Prize in physics because it was a major breakthrough that changed our understanding of space-time itself. Because what gravitational waves are is not what we normally think of when we say gravity. They are literal ripples in space-time. Whoa. Like, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around personally, so all I can do is sort of accept it at face value, which is <laughs> reality wobbles. And those wobbles are the outward-moving after-effects of massive astrophysical events such as black holes colliding. Huh. Mm -hmm. So we're barely out of the gate with these gravitational wave things. And already this article is like, let's talk about what happens in season two. <laughs> so to understand what scientists are doing in this brand new field, we have to look at the original discovery and how it worked. Like a lot of things in science, gravitational waves were first predicted by Albert Einstein in 1916, but up until 2015, we had never been able to prove their existence. And a big part of that was just figuring out how to detect them. Because it's really hard to use physical objects in space and time to measure ripples in that space and time because you're part of the ripple, right? Mm -hmm. But through an international collaboration of scientists, they came up with an idea which eventually became known as the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO. And the way it works is you have two massive underground tunnels, each about two and a half miles long and crossing in the middle. You fire a laser down one tunnel toward the middle, where it goes through a beam splitter, meaning some photons continue straight ahead and others make a sharp left turn down the side tunnel. And how the beam splitter itself works is not clear at all, but the key is that the wavelengths of these two beams of photons are still in sync, so to speak, since they came from one original beam and have just been neatly divided in half. So then both of those arms of the tunnel have mirrors at the end, so both beams bounce back again and recross at the middle. And because they're now crashing into each other at right angles, but with the same wavelength, there's a certain predictable interference in the photons in the center. Okay. So now imagine a wave traveling in a specific direction across this plus-shaped tunnel setup. It's going to hit the tunnels differently because one tunnel is going to be hit broadside while the perpendicular tunnel will have the wave travel up its length. Mm -hmm. And this will apparently affect the realities of the two photon beams in different ways, such that while we can't detect a change in either individual beam, they will get briefly out of sync with each other, and the change in the interference pattern at the crossing point will be measurable, and thus we will know that a secret gravitational wave has just passed through. Huh. So the breakthrough really all comes down to the basic idea of how to detect these things. Because as soon as we did it that first time in 2015, we immediately did it a bunch more times, including at new detectors built in Italy and Japan, where they basically took this relatively simple proof of concept and were like, oh, we could totally do that. And then they did. <laughs> so the limiting factor when it comes to LIGO is the length of the tunnel, which at two and a half miles, like we said, is currently big enough to detect gravitational waves from relatively small events like two black holes colliding somewhere out in space, but is not big enough for the kind of waves that are generated by supermassive black holes at the center of galaxies or possibly even the residual waves left over from the Big Bang itself. Mm. In order to detect those, we would need a LIGO setup that was longer than the entire Earth. So the scientists were like, okay, we'll just build one out in space. They're calling it LISA, or Laser Interferometer Space Antenna, 
And the reason we can get away with building something that big is because the tunnel part isn't actually necessary. We just need the laser source and the two mirrors at the ends, which can be attached to different spacecraft and just fired off until they're millions of miles apart. I I really feel like the distinction between scientist and mad scientist is completely <laughs> <Right>. gone <laughs> in this, this era. Point. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, oh, it has to be longer than the Earth? Okay, we'll just put That's it fine. in space. Like, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there are some technical aspects to it. The mirrors have to be kept incredibly steady in order for this to work. Mm. According to Lisa mission manager Paul McNamara, the differences that the system will need to measure are along the lines of a tenth of an atom over one million miles. Oh, my gosh. But they've already completed one test flight that proved holding these mirrors steady was possible. And in fact, they were able to hold the mirrors still to within one thousandth of the width of an atom. This requires, among other things, minuscule thrusters on the spacecraft that are calibrated to counteract the force of light from the sun. Oh, my gosh. But apparently, like, the article just totally glossed over that. That was technology we already had. It was just a question of realizing that we could use it for this purpose. Mm. And I guess it makes sense. Like, we do have to be very precise about orbits and things in space. So, you know, holding something very still, I guess, isn't that hard. But it seems like a minuscule thruster... That's yeah. going to somehow counteract the act of a photon hitting it. That just doesn't make any sense size-wise to me. These are, Yeah, these are just tiny, tiny measurements that I, yeah. I can't, I have no frame of reference for. Right. What is a thousandth of an atom? How do you even know that it didn't wiggle? <laughs> I don't know. But somehow they do. As for what we're going to do with this information, McNamara freely admits we don't know yet. Quote, whenever you open a new window to the universe, you usually see things you don't expect. And if we get signals that we can't easily explain through known black hole phenomena, that is when the fun starts. And I think it's fair to say that physicists have a different definition of fun than I do, (laughs) because I don't want to think about the idea that our reality is just sort of wobbling along as we live through it. But apparently it's been going on my whole life and I was fine not knowing it. So I'm not as discomfited by it. I find it somewhat comforting almost like this is sort of how reality breathes in a way. You know, like breath is never the same. That's a nice way of thinking of it. It's never fixed, right? Sometimes you take a deeper breath or a shallower breath and there's something very fluid and organic about this finding that really jives with me on a like fractal geometry nature having its own patterns that Mm -hmm. I'm into it. See, now I'm just thinking of too much about my own breathing. Like I'm <laughs> breathing on purpose. I'm focusing well, on it. congratulations. You're meditating now, Jennifer. Good job. That's what it is. Yes. God, meditating is annoying. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. A little bit of a content warning on this, but it was too irresistible for me not to include this week. Uh, there's an article from Discover called Sexual Cannibalism, Why Females Sometimes Eat Their Mates After Sex. Hmm. So we all know like species like praying mantises and even snakes have been observed engaging in sexual cannibalism. But trying to understand why this happens is sort of the chief conceit of this article. So scientists have come up with a number of hypotheses for why sexual cannibalism occurs, positing that males make good meals or aggressive females <laughs> get confused about what is prey and what isn't. <laughs> I much prefer the the theory that they're tasty over she's too dumb to know what's food and what's not. Like, right, or too aggressive. She's know. Like yeah. this whole thing of like females are too aggressive and can't stop themselves, like definitely raised some red flags to my feminist perspective, but <laughs> I'll, I'll push forward here. So one theory posits that sexual cannibalism is what scientists call a 
maladaptive side effect of female、mm. aggression. It's borne out by studies showing that aggressive females are more likely to eat males. Females that are more aggressive when hunting tend to get more food, so they have better odds of surviving and having children. And the unfortunate males in this case may simply be in the way. Oh, <laughs> a different theory for sexual cannibalism holds that it's the result of females being choosy. For example, less impressive male wolf spiders were more likely to be eaten by the females. But it's not just spiders that eat mates after sex. We've documented female anacondas strangling their mates after mating,、mm. likely to use as food later. Likely being the key operative word of that <laughs> sentence, because <laughs> who knows? We should. She、study. could have just been mad at him. You don't right? know, right? <laughs> I told you that's not how I like it. <laughs> anyway, <laughs>、um, isopods are a kind of crustacean that also engage in sexual cannibalism, but it appears to go both ways with this species. Both males and females have been seen eating their mates after sex. <laughs> They're not really quite sure why the males go after the females. I mean, they did just go through the trouble of creating offspring with them, but it may、yeah. only occur when females die shortly after mating or when males are dangerously short of food. It's like, oops, she died. <laughs> Don't want to let it go to waste. I mean, that's you know responsible.、Yeah. It kind of is, right? It's a, it's an efficient use of protein, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah.、Uh, we've also seen sexual cannibalism rarely. But we've seen it in octopuses as well. For、mm. one instance, a female blue octopus killed a small male after he had mated with her multiple times before dragging his body to her den for dinner. <laughs> Typically, the females kill males by strangulation in the octopus world, where they will wrap a tentacle around the male's mantle to cut off the flow of water to their gills, which effectively suffocates them. Whoa! But it's not like males are helpless. Some will take the route of appeasing their potentially ravenous partner. So. Male nursery web spiders will come bearing gifts like tasty insects for their hungry mates, surely gathered through the aforementioned gossamer blanket.、Um, mm. Those that do are found to be cannibalized at far lower rates than males that show up empty-handed. So bring the equivalent of the roses and the heart-shaped box of chocolates, y'all. It could、yeah. go a long way. <laughs> There's even one species of mantis that will sometimes. Time their approaches to the female with sufficiently strong gusts of wind, so it can cover sign of their advance. Like you can't smell me coming, please don't eat me. They're ninja mates, right? I mean, especially for mantises, where this behavior is so common.、Uh, mm-hmm. I, I appreciate the efforts to try to stay alive here. Yeah, there are some males that will take a lot more of a direct approach. For example, male nursery web spiders will tie the legs of their prospective mates with silk. Prior to mating, something researchers have turned a bridal veil. <clears throat>、eh, if she's into it, you know I, mean, I don't judge. I'm not going to kink shame the spiders. <laughs> yep, the strategy not only protects the males against predation, it also lets them mate for longer, which increases the chances of having offspring. A 2016 study confirmed that males who opted for bondage significantly decreased their chances of getting eaten by females. And the article ends with tying the knot. Indeed,、oh. <laughs> <laughs> the bridal veil. What a nice way to protect everybody's Google search history. <laughs> That's like when museum artifacts are like it was used in an ancient fertility ritual.、Mm, okay, that's one way to phrase it. <laughs> So gentle, so politic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next link. Next, next link. link.
This article comes to us from sciencealert.com, and it's titled, Source of a Weird Quantum Sense Found in an Actual Migratory Bird for the First Time. Hey. Yeah. Well, like birds are sensing quantum energy? That's the way this seems to be going. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm just getting more and more uncomfortable with every article today. This is crazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so long hypothesized as means by which animals might sense the tug of Earth's weak magnetic field, a non-classical response to light has been observed taking place within a protein expressed in the eyes of a night migratory songbird. A collaboration between researchers from institutions around the globe puts the small bird's cryptochrome protein complex through its paces to see how it responded to being illuminated continuously and in flashes of blue light both inside and outside of a weak magnetic field. So while it stops short of proving the small birds rely on a quantum quirk of chemistry, you're welcome, Jen, uh, to Uh stay on course (laughs) as they cross Europe, the finding provides crucial evidence in support of the theory of magnetoreception's role in navigation. But earlier this year, a team of researchers from the University of Tokyo found a similar protein in humans was capable of responding to blue light in different ways, depending on the strength of a nearby magnetic field. So the way it works is certain atoms in the protein with a lone electron swinging around in its outer shell could be partnered with another solitary electron in what's known as a radical pair, effectively entangling their characteristics. And the nature of this partnership can be affected by a magnetic field. Struck with a specific dose of energy in the form of blue light, a radical pair will fluoresce in different ways depending on how they're entangled. So in other words, the quantum nature of the relationship between two electrons in the right structure of protein can use light to signal different strengths of a magnetic field, even one as weak as Earth's. So the researchers compared the robin's cryptochrome with a similar protein complex copied from chickens, a bird not known for taking journeys any more arduous than crossing (laughs) the occasional road. Uh, In addition, the researchers analyzed cryptochromes from common pigeons. The laboratory tests suggest the cryptochromes in robins are up to the job of sensing the subtle influence of Earth's magnetic field, more so than those in chickens and pigeons, at least. Further studies will somehow need to be carried out humanely and ethically on live subjects if we're to confirm (laughs) quantum actions of cryptochrome are indeed what tells robins which way to go for a warm winter break. As for what the tiny bird actually sees when it detects a magnetic field, that part we will only ever be able to imagine. Yeah, this is so, okay, this is like that Descartes thing where... How do I know that what I see as blue is what you see as blue? Mm -hmm. Like, maybe there are people among us who are sensing quantum stuff, and they don't really realize it. Like, to them, they're just like, oh, I just have a gut feeling. Or, like, I just tend to be a really lucky person. And someday we're going to figure out those people the whole time were sensing quantum stuff, and somehow their brain was guiding them towards what was going to be the lucky outcome because they somehow knew what was entangled. And Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's funny to me that this has always been, you know, like, theoretical, pop, sci-fi, magical realism, blah, blah, blah. And Mm -hmm. then they do a study, and they're like, no, no, human beings can actually respond to magnetic fields. That's totally a thing. Um, (laughs) Which, I mean, we always knew that we respond to electromagnetic fields because we're like sure. animals and, and a, mm-hmm. just not as sensitively. But the fact that this is a apparently a entanglement derived effect is right. pretty crazy. Right. That's where you start to get me in the whole like the reality is nothing. This is all a dream. <laughs> I got to go back to meditating like yeah. this. <laughs> Next link. <laughs> 
Next, next link. link. All right, this next one is from The Atlantic, and it's called No One Imagined Giant Lizard Nests Would Be This Weird. <laughs> and giant lizard in this case refers specifically to the yellow-spotted goanna, which is a predatory monitor lizard native to Australia that can reach up to five feet in length. Whoa. And I do highly recommend you check out the picture. It's a beautiful creature. It's super brightly colored. It kind of looks like a cross between a lizard and a cheetah. And its tongue is out like three feet long. It's amazing. But it's also super deadly. And we should not be anywhere near it. Because, uh, yeah, (laughs) even though the Goana's natural range covers an area as large as Europe, it's a largely uninhabited part of Australia. So sightings Mm. had been rare. And in particular, no one had ever figured out where they lay their eggs. Hmm. So Sean Duty, a herpetologist from the University of South Florida, had spoken with Aboriginal Australians living in the outback who said they had caught pregnant female goannas next to what looked like burrow holes. But the holes only ever went about an arm's length into the ground, and then they just stopped. Hmm. But in 2012, Duty found one of these burrow holes for himself, and he noticed that the dirt at the end of the tunnel was actually softer than the surrounding walls, which made him suspect that the tunnel actually went deeper and the goanna had just backfilled the entrance with dirt as a sort of protective door. So he and his colleagues started digging and digging and digging because the deeper they went, the more confused they got because even (laughs) the biggest burrowing reptiles usually only go a foot or so beneath the surface. What's more, the goanna tunnel started to spiral as it went downward. By the time they finally reached the egg chamber, This particular tunnel from 2012 was five feet deep, and Duty has since seen goanna tunnels that go as far as 13 feet beneath the surface, all with that same spiraling structure. He said, quote, that's a ridiculous depth. (laughs) (laughs) So his theory is that the goanna faces a unique challenge because its eggs have a relatively long incubation period of eight months, which means that they have to cross through Australia's brutal dry season where several months can go by without any rain. And at shallow depths, Duty thinks the eggs would basically cook underground. So they have to go deeper to stay cool and damp all the way until it's time to hatch. He's also had the opportunity in recent years to witness the actual digging of a burrow. He says the female goanna first digs the short tunnel that biologists were familiar with, moving the dirt out of the hole and into a small pile. Then she goes in head first and starts effectively swimming downward clawing the dirt in front of her and pushing it behind her so she remains completely buried with just enough airspace in front of her to breathe. And that explains the corkscrewing, he said, because turning her head a little to one side enables her to hold a space open with her body that prevents the tunnel from collapsing on her face. Once she decides she's gone deep enough, she digs a little turnaround chamber, lays her eggs, and crawls back out the way she came, ultimately emerging a full seven to ten days after she first went under. The eggs stay buried and unattended in their little open chamber until they hatch, at which point the baby goannas instinctively dig straight up instead of following the path outward, which means this small litter of eight or so babies has to go through several meters of hard-packed dirt with their little baby claws that are not yet fully formed. Yeah. But somehow they do it, and they've also found that goannas will reuse the same burrows from year to year and often dig their spirals in clusters close to one another. They don't mind if their tunnels intersect and overlap, And Duty said they once found an area that contained more than 100 separate egg clutches at varying depths in a space the size of a small living room. 
Oh my God. It was a whole community. Yeah. He said they scanned the dirt and it looked like a mattress spring. Like it was just <gasps> spirals everywhere. Wow. The tunnels are also used by a wide range of other creatures, especially frogs, of all things, who endure the dry season by burying themselves in the soft backfilled dirt and hibernating for a few months before the goanna comes back for another laying season. And they couldn't do this if the dirt was still hard. They have to have that soft dirt that the goanna mm -hmm. has already dug through. Duty said his team has also found other lizards, snakes, scorpions, centipedes, beetles, ants, and a mouse-like marsupial called the fat-tailed false antichinus hmm. using the tunnels, which qualifies the goannas as ecosystem engineers of continent-wide importance. Wow. Which, again, he says is very unusual because they are apex predators. Like, half of these creatures that are using their burrows, the goanna will eat at the drop of a hat. But if they weren't building the tunnels, the frogs were going to die in the dry season anyway. Right. So it's a very weird relationship that they have. But it matters because even though they are an apex predator who doesn't generally encounter humans and could definitely take one in a fight, goannas are dying out in some areas mm -hmm. due to an invasive poisonous species of cane toad that was introduced into the Australian ecosystem by humans in 1935. And if the goannas go all the species that rely on their tunnels start to oh, go, too. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, they're really concerned. Obviously, this guy in particular wants to make sure the goannas are protected, both because he thinks goannas are really cool and also because the whole ecosystem would be thrown into chaos if yeah. we lost the goannas. I don't especially like the idea that there might be a goanna 13 meters underground, or thir <laughs> 13 feet underground, like that's just prepared to dig up at any moment. It's like tremors. You guys ever see that? <laughs> yes, but it sounds like the guanas are so much more organized. I mean, tight spirals yeah. that join mm -hmm. together. I mean, so they'll all erupt at the same time. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right, let's try to set our minds at ease a little bit after uh, a somewhat upsetting selection of articles today. <laughs> uh, some, some good news. AP says it will no longer name suspects in minor crimes. Uh, this comes from APNews.com, a little bit of a self-serving article since they're talking about themselves, but still important. The Associated Press said it will no longer run the names of people charged with minor crimes out of concern that such stories can have a long, damaging afterlife on the internet that can make it hard hmm. for people to move on with their lives. Mm -hmm. In so doing, one of the world's biggest news gathering organizations has waded into a debate over an issue that wasn't really much of an issue before the rise of search mm -hmm. engines when finding information on people meant going through physical media. So mm -hmm. often the AP will publish a minor story like, and these are the examples they cite in the article, say about a person arrested for stripping naked and dancing drunkenly atop a bar. Mm. And something like this will hold some brief interest regionally or even nationally and be forgotten by the next day. But the name of that person arrested will live on forever online, right. even if the charges are dropped or the person is acquitted. Rarely mm -hmm. do we get that follow-up saying, ah, this was a mistake, or oh, they right. were misbooked. Exactly. So basically, the AP sent a directive out to its journalists across the country, said, don't name suspects or transmit photographs of them in brief stories about minor crimes when there is little chance the organization will cover the case beyond the initial arrest. So if this is mm. a story that doesn't look like we're going to be covering after it, why make a permanent record that we've mm -hmm. been threatened with since being in grade school, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I'm on board with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, so, I mean, because the thing is, some of that stuff is still public record through police searches. Sure. And I made the mistake 
of like, oh, this will be fun, like searching for people I know in certain police records. And I found results that I did not want to have found. Nope. And yeah, I was just like, oh, I should I shouldn't have done this. I really <laughs> should not have looked up these people. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so the AP is kind of wising to this. So they're also not going to link to local newspaper or broadcast stories about such incidents where the arrested person's name or mugshot might be used. So they're also looking at this as kind of a web ecosystem SEO situation, not just the work they're putting out, right? Mm. Um, the AP will also not do stories driven mainly by particularly embarrassing mugshots and i'm mm. recalling sort of like mugshot magazines you could pick up at 7-eleven yeah. in denton or whatever i remember that being a particular thing and you know it's cheap and tawdry entertainment but truly damaging for the amount oh, of yeah. like you know schadenfreude uh, it can give us the policy will obviously not apply to serious crimes like those involving violence or abuse of the public trust or even cases of a fugitive on the run. And so they're hoping that by making this change, it will have a ripple effect and prompt other organizations to stop and take a look at these practices. They found that several other organizations are already doing so, driven in part by requests from people whose time in the news has lived mm. on via the internet, aka take this down. <laughs> uh, for example, the Boston Globe announced earlier this year an appeals process where it would consider on a case-by-case -case basis removing old stories from its archives. However, a lot of people want to be very clear that they're not in the business of rewriting the past. There was a columnist for the Los Angeles Times who wrote that news organizations shouldn't muck around with history, that trying to rewrite the past or even trying to hide from view what has already been reported is almost always a mistake. And so when the AP announced this policy, it had a very vigorous debate on social media, of course. Mm -hmm. Apparently in 2018, a survey conducted by Dwyer, some 80% of news organizations had some policy about removing stories from archives, which was up from less than half about a decade earlier. But in some cases, the policies aren't written down, they're not talked about in public, or they're not even publicized in their own newsrooms. And so they haven't really socialized this information within the organizations. Mm -hmm. Apparently, the research that the AP has done has found that a majority of Americans believe they have the right to ask news organizations to remove stories from archives and would expect articles to be updated if charges were dropped. But mm. at the same time, a lot of people believe that an organization's archive would be less trustworthy if it allowed stories to be scrubbed from it. Yeah. I mean, definitely, there's a difference between I tried to rob a bank and <laughs> yes. I behaved in an embarrassing fashion in right. a way that didn't really hurt anybody. Or I took an ugly mugshot. I mean, that, you know. Yeah, mm. truly, yeah. If you had a really over-the-top time at spring break, okay, maybe we can kind of overlook that. But if you have a history of beating your wife, maybe right. people That's ought very to know. Different. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. I don't have a history of beating my wife. Just <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from daily.jstore.org, and it's titled, Can Bach Make You Buy More Stuff? So, uh -oh. yeah, it's, it's no <laughs> secret that the whole point of a commercial is to sell things and all of its elements from the lighting to the camera angles to the spokespeople are part of that. As music historian Peter Kupfer points out, music can help convey the message of an advertisement. But are all genres the same? Nostalgic tunes from high school are all over the place, but how about mm -hmm. classical, which most people mm -hmm. are less familiar with? 
and also, I guess it really depends who's reading this article, whether or not <laughs> right. nostalgic tunes from high school are all over the place. But anyways, uh, <laughs> advertisers don't use classical music as frequently, but the genre does seem to signal a certain type of message that other genres don't, according to Kupfer. I'm going to guess it's luxury, sophistication, expense. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> classical <laughs> music is generally used to convey prestige and class, Kupfer writes. As a humor, as mood music, or as a reference to another iconic use of the same piece. For example, Kupfer points to the frequent use of Richard Strauss's also sprach Zarathustra as a signal of big things to come. Additionally, while commercials music doesn't necessarily change perceptions of the brand, it may change viewers' perceptions of themselves. As Kupfer writes... Advertisers have moved towards selling a way of life, and classical can Mm -hmm. be the soundtrack of aspiration. Mm -hmm. It can also give the product a sense of trust or reassurance, which might account for its use in commercials for financial products. Mm -hmm. So, do fans of classical music respond more to these advertisements? Well, not necessarily. First, as Kupfer found, it's hard to gauge just who is a classical music fan. Uh, I don't really because they don't want to admit it. Yeah. They're like, oh, it's just my dirty habit. Yeah, I don't really know what that means exactly in this context. But because the genre carries the image of sophistication, it's not clear whether some people state a preference for it just because they think they should. And, of Mm -hmm. course, genre is always a moving target. What one person considers classical might not be what someone else does. Lastly, it's possible that classical fans actually resent the music being used as marketing. Hmm. For example, one conductor found it offensive when a part of Mozart's Requiem was used in an ad for a toilet. But... (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) But Kupfer points out, Classical music might have one advantage as a marketing tool. It breaks through more effectively because it is so rarely used. Yeah, I'm trying to like reimagine some, you know, major ads that I've seen with classical music. Like how would they pivot into that and use it? I think a lot of it is used ironically uh-huh. now. Yeah. yeah. Like I feel like I've seen a car ad where they're really playing up the whole like, yeah, it's like a sexy sports car, but also you have kids and we get that. Like they're trying <laughs> to skate that line between you know, someone who, midlife crisis, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, yeah, I agree. Well, we'll ask Bach what he thinks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include why do some animals have sperm 20 times the length of their body? The Internet eats up less energy than you might think. And first ever DNA recovered from extinct miniature elephants of Sicily. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and you noticed the lack of advertisements, that wasn't an accident. It's a choice. We hope you support that choice as much as we do. If you'd like to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.